When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the big storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Wednesday, January 10th. As promised, it's going to be a two-mini break podcast Wednesday for all of you listeners as we not only cover the action happening on court this week, but we try to prepare all of you listeners for the first major of the 2024 season. That's right, the Australian Open. It's less than a week from its start date, and over the course of the next few days, we're going to do what we do best. We're going to try and preview the year's first major from every angle, talk about our top contenders, talk about the dark horses, talk about the Americans, get you ready and set previewed for the draw and do all of the things we think need to be done before the action gets underway in Melbourne. Of course, on today's podcast, we're going to kick off our preview coverage, not only with a fantastic topic, but perhaps the best guest to kick off our Australian Open coverage as it's the first time we have him joining us here in 2024 as he joins me today to offer our top 10 power rankings heading into the Australian Open women's singles competition. Of course, you all know him best as a returning champion of returning champions here on the Mini Break Podcast feed, essentially my co-host throughout the course of 2023. Hopefully, we can make that even more the case here in 2024, and you'll get to start seeing his smiling face on video. Of course, you know him in his day job as an editorial producer for all things Tennis Channel and Tennis.com. You can follow him at DKTWNS on Twitter. He's our dear friend, David Kane. DK, welcome back to the podcast. I'm going to say Happy New Year for the last time here on this show because it's you. It's great to have you back. How are you doing, my friend? And the Snovim Godom to you, Sasha. <laughs> By the way, new title, lead editor of Tennis.com. Really? Mazel tov. Let's give him a round of applause. Give me the celebration sound effects, West stuff. Congratulations. Well, Unofficially, the voice of Tennis.com. I am, to quote Oprah Winfrey, the voice. And I'm hoping to bring you more of that in 2024. Well, very well deserved, my friend, your off-season content, not just you, the entire Tennis.com team. I know it got a lot of us through our one month on the calendar where we don't have action week in, week out. Are you ready for the storm, by the way? Not only is it the Australian Open, but, you know, again, we're nocturnal over the course of the next two weeks. you got to change the sleep schedule. you got to change the eating habits, the workout habits. I'm a Planet Fitness member, so I can get those weird hour lifts in What's your plan to tackle the 2024 Australian Open from a coverage perspective? Lead editor. Prayer? I just got my hours <laughs> for this year, and they are wilder than ever. So get ready for some super inappropriate text messages at 3.30 in the morning because I will be up. <laughs> I would have it any other way. Hopefully, again, with the change and in title. And poor Gil. I mean, what, what he's in for, I can't <laughs> even tell you. <laughs> Hopefully, the change in title means maybe two more trips at least to the Cheesecake Factory per quarter. Like that feels like it's well deserved with these hours are going to get too funky. No, I'm, I'm in a New Year's resolution <laughs> mode. So it's going to be a lot of late night spinning, I imagine, right. probably like at 10 p.m. 45, you know, to kind of break up the hours a little bit. This is why you get me. I am so excited for Grand Slam tennis because it's just an excuse for me to sit on the bike and watch tennis, which I'm doing anyways. But now it's at least live tennis, which makes it that much more thrilling and perhaps take your mind off things that much. So we can coordinate our cycle sessions and talk through them as well. Maybe we can live podcast, do some sort of bit, uh, figure something out throughout the course of them. But yeah, again, congratulations to you on the promotion. Well-deserved. We're looking forward to seeing your content or reading your content throughout the course of the year and certainly throughout the course of the Australian Open. But again, I'm really happy to have you back on this podcast selfishly because it's time to nerd out. It's time to offer our top 10 power rankings heading into this 2024 Australian Open women's singles competition. Of course, before we do, shout out to our friends at Tennis Point. Best equipment, 
best prices, all in one location, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15DK. The struggle in this exercise, and by the way, I try not to do this exercise for the other slams in as specific as just give me a top 10 power rankings because, dare I say, it's a little mainstream. It's a little basic. You can find this in other places. The thing is, I think we have to get this simple as we head into the Australian Open because as of this podcast recording, it's Wednesday, January 10th, we've seen like 10 days, 11 days of pro tennis to go off of from this 2024 season. There really aren't that many takes to be offered. So I And yet already 50 players have impressed you. Well, it's a little time. You, <laughs> let me tell you, four, two, two, the answers, eight plus 12, 20 players on my list. I had okay. four tiers I broke Apologies. my list into. I have a clear cut top eight, then we'll have some fun with the final two spots. But Again, I figured let's let's simplify things. Let's just go with the rankings. We debated should we do it before the draw, after the draw. We but again, DK's got some funky hours, so we decided we'll record right before the draw comes out. For what it's worth, we're going to do the men's one tomorrow. That one will have the benefit of seeing the draw in advance. But instead of breaking down contenders, whatever it may be, let's just go. Who are your ten best players entering this Australian Open? The players you have the most confidence in, the players you think are most likely perhaps to walk away with the title. I don't know what, I guess before we get into it, what was your criteria? How did you think about making your list? Was it just straight up who can win this title? Well, I know how much you like stats. So I did bring in the immortal <laughs> words of Heather Gay from the Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. I brought receipts, okay. proof, timeline, screenshots, I screenshotted my list for, for Gruskin hours before. It's true. He uh, gave me we, an outline. We, hours before we jumped on to record. I mean, I think I have to say for the women, they've made it pretty easy because some of the most familiar suspects all did quite well, uh, were arguably undefeated for the first five or six days of 2024, that being your your top four of Svantec, Rabakina, Sabalenka, and Goff. And those, I think, are probably going to be on everybody's short list going into the Australian Open, that being a combination of your reigning Grand Slam champion, your two finalists from last year, the reigning world number one. I mean, these are all very obvious. But I do think the right players have been impressive in the first week and a half of 2024 that it does allow you to create a fairly clear picture based on what we've seen for the last 12 months with mostly a good degree of certainty what to expect in the next uh Grand Slam. Really well said. My criteria, pretty simple. If you have impressed here in 2024, I'm going to take note of that. But yeah, I wanted to see what was your sample size? How were you on hard courts last year? Is there something particularly of note as you look at not just Ego, because that's the obvious one, Sabalenka, Rabakina, but Goff doesn't just have that U.S. Open success, right? Goff, 29-4 and four since the losing to Sonia Kennan in round one of Wimbledon last year. And by the way, it's not just that 29-4 and four you want to look at her since the start of last season on hard courts overall. She's been ridiculous, 45-9. and nine. Like, that is a tier one sort of player. Now, that is where I want to start this conversation because I agree with you. It was one of my overreactions that's maybe not that hot of an overreaction given they're the top four players in the rankings. But why I wanted to say it was an overreaction is I think there's a clear-cut tier one that has emerged. And that's where I want to start this conversation conversation. I think four players more than any others have earned that benefit of the doubt of if anyone is walking away with the title, it is going to be one of you four. And we'll get to the argument, I think, in a second of why is Jessica Pagula not in this tier number one? Because you're shaking your head yes towards me as if you agree it's a four-player tier. Let's just get right into it. Who is number one in your tier one right now? Who is that player that stands, dare I say, amongst this group of favorites as the favorite of favorites? The tricky one, because we are talking about hard courts and based on how most of these players performed last year, there was certainly an advantage given to those bigger hitters, your Rabakinas and your Sabalenkas over Aniga Shriantek, who lost in the fourth round of both hard court majors. But I have to put Ig at number one because she is undefeated since Tokyo. I mean, like, and undefeated through the start of United Cup. I think she's just in a really good headspace, playing really good tennis in a way that does not make me think she's going to be in a way that's going to be challenged at the Australian Open. I just think that as impressive as Sabalink and Rybakin have already been, I just feel like this is Shriantek's chance to prove herself on a quicker surface against a big hitter. And I tend to think she's going to pass that test. 
Couldn't agree with you more. She's number one in my tier one as well. And just looking at the numbers, not only has she won 16 matches in a row, or by the way, she's only lost two sets in those 16 matches, both the same player, Caroline Garcia. Both matches she bounces back, wins the next two sets. Six and one the first time, one and one the next time. You know, again, in her four losses, she's also won a set in each of those matches. So even if you beat her, it's going to be a three-set match. And I said this stat earlier since the start of 2022. She's 16 and 16 after dropping the first set. So even if you're up a set on her, it's like, yeah, but you only got a 500% chance of beating her. Like it's 50-50 from there, even if she spots you that opening set. She's 31 and four overall on hard court since the end of Wimbledon. And again, in her 31 victories, she's dropped just five sets across those 31 wins. So what we're talking, she's dropped 13 sets in her last 35 matches. That's a hilarious run. Only player to rank top 10 in both hold and break percentage over the last 52 weeks as well. And if I want to over my overreaction amongst the overreactions, I tweeted this, I think January like second. I think Iga Sviantek might win all four slams this year. Like, I think this offseason, she got to do what everyone else did last year, which is come in and say, oh, you all adjusted to me, and you're all playing power tennis, and you're all just taking your swings and saying, we're going to try and take the racket out of your hand. Well, now it's my turn to do some punishment. Now it's my turn to scheme back against that. And I think you've just seen that plus one prowess. Like, the first four games against Chin Wen were really good. Then that match was over. Like, then it was just all on Ika's terms. Again, credit to Garcia. Her aggression took the racket out of Sviantek's hand or at least leveled things for a set, and then it didn't. It was one and one the rest of the way from there. That Kerber match, you know, it is worth noting. I know it was 3-0, and but Kerber had chances to go up a break 4-2. She had chances to go up a break, uh, or maybe it was go up a break 3-2, go up a break 4-3, was unable to break on either occasion. Then Ika just pulled away from there. Like, I, I don't know what the weakness is. Like, you just have to play elite power tennis. You have to play the best possible version of Serena Power Tennis Country Club Tennis, I think, to beat Iga Sviantek right now. And as good as Coco has looked, and by the way, I've said this on other podcasts, but you're here, so I have a Coco observation to share with you that I'm really excited for when we get there, DK. Don't you worry. That's what we call a tease in this business. But, like, again, she's 31-4. and four. Yes, she lost to Sviantek, but she also beat Sviantek. Uh, unless she lost to Fiantek, excuse me. Yes, she lost to Goff, but she also beat Goff multiple times since that Cincinnati loss. You know, she lost to Ostapenko on the day of days, and maybe that happens. We'll talk Ostapenko later, but okay. Again, that's an elite power tennis performance. Yes, she lost to Pagula, but you're going to lean that head-to-head her way every time. She's earned that benefit of the doubt. She's beaten Sabalenka as well. Like, She's the favorite. She's earned that benefit of the doubt. And again, maybe my four, all four slams is an overreaction, DK, but your face hasn't given me one of those, all right, I got to rein Alex back in. And you're giving me one of those, like, maybe you're right, Alex. I mean, I just, it goes back to the way that she ended the year and the way that she started this year. It's just a very different look. And I think people were very, people being me, were very critical of Ika, you know, at the beginning of last year, based on how she was performing against your Rebakinas, your Sabalenkas on fast courts, even on some slow courts, you know, in the, on the clay courts of Madrid. I think it's just a different look at Iga this year. I, I think to your point, she's had the opportunity now to do her own adjusting. And even without those adjustments, she remained the best athlete and the most emotionally stable, mentally tough player, even without those improvements. So to have that on top of it just makes her a very, very tough out. And if the toughest, if the worst, most critical thing we could say about Iga is that she might lose to a big hitter having a great day, like, I'll take so those would odds. anyone, 100%. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> no, and like, to finish that Coco Golf point I stopped myself from making, I, like, the why Goff isn't higher on the list is just like, and I've said this before, Iga's just a better version of Coco. It's like they're both outstanding athletes. They both can do a little bit of everything. They're both elite in sliding into that backhand. I don't know how they do that. Just again, it's athleticism. I don't know if I've ever seen uh, so consistently displayed from these two young players. Forehand grips are a little bit funky, but like, okay, they're still plenty effective on that wing. And again, it's just the consistency across the board for Iga, who is over 50% in break percentage, again, over a 52-week stretch. It's just like, what are we doing if she's breaking serve every other time? Again, like, yeah, if Sabalenka, Rabakina have one of those days, maybe even Ostapenko, fine. 
they do that from time to time. And we'll talk about that Sabalenka-Rabakina side in a second. But to your point, you said it perfectly. It's going to take one of those sorts of days, it feels like, to knock off Iga right now because she's just in the zone. She has been you know, 8-2 and two since the end of Wimbledon on hard courts against top 10 opponents, 12-3 and three against the top 20. And again, even in her four losses, she has won at least one set in all of those matches. Iga's our one. Who's your two? And by the way, I, I know I knocked you. Or I didn't let you answer. It is a four-player tier one, right? Correct. Yeah. And I, the reason why I have Goff behind Iga and also our two big hitting sisters is because Goff hasn't had a chance to play any of those women yet. If she had been in Brisbane and beaten Rabakina or taken Sabalinka three sets, maybe I would have felt differently about where she fit in this um, ranking. But even though she did win a title and Sabalinka didn't, I put Goff behind Sabalinka because Sabalinka was in a slightly tougher field, you know, final against Fiddley notwithstanding. I did put Rabakina ahead of Sabalenka because this is a power ranking and she's the one coming in with more momentum. If, you know, Sabalenka managed to come into Australia undefeated, I think she had like a 15 or 16 match winning streak in Australia that was already starting to get talked about before that final that she lost to Rabakina fairly decisively. I mean, otherwise it had been a great week for Arena, but I think Elena's playing really good tennis and she is also the one who has beaten um, Iga on hard courts, <laughs> you know, a good amount of times. I think I'm pretty sure Arena's only win has been on clay still. And, and obviously indoors for the, the finals. But outdoor hard courts, Rabakina has gotten quite a few scalps on Iga. So to the extent that Iga is in danger, it would be if Rabakina ends up in that half, the Iga half. I think that would be a pretty uh, a tough prospect for Iga, as tough as it could get these days. Yeah, that's a fascinating point to make. And again, I have the head-to-head records in front of me. Iga, 9-1 and one still in her career against Coco Goff. Against Sabalenka, she's got a 6-3 head-to-head advantage. And again, beat her in the Cancun finals. Beat her at the U.S. Open semifinals. Like, has gotten hard court wins against Sabalenka, not just the clay court success where obviously she's also had some... Uh, or, some victories, excuse me, accumulated over Sabalenka. But you're right. Like, Rabaka went 3-0 and against Svantec last year. Two of those wins were on hard courts. And they were two straight set victories. Not they often not you close. say that. Yeah. <laughs> well, 4-4 four and four at the Australian Open. Again, that was kind of the Rabaka. Okay, she's here to stay victory. They were very never in doubt if yes. you were watching them. Yeah. It was, again, it was one of those elite power tennis performances that just took the racket out of the hand. 2-2 two and two in Indian Wells. That would be a good case. That's a great supplement to the Rabakina argument that I wasn't thinking. That Rabakina does have that three to one career head to head success uh, over Iga Sviantek. But, like, I guess, is it, uh, here's the thing it's really hard to argue against Rabakina after the performance we saw from her uh, in Brisbane to beat Sabalenka three in love. Uh, excuse me, love in three. And for Sabalenka's first game on the board to be a return game, not a service game, a return game just spoke to talk about taking the racket out of your opponent's hand, that sort of performance from Rabakina. I just don't know if I can give her the nod given how consistent Sabalenka was at the slams last year. Like Sabalenka, yeah, she got the racket taken out of her hand by Rabakina. You know, some scholars are asking if tennis had talk radio, it would be, did Rabakina do that too soon? Like does Sabalenka now get to make the adjustment and kind of has seen that storm and gets to pick maybe some different service spots. There was no serving to the Rabakina backhand in that match. She was lighting that side up down the line inside in, like all the different things you can do with the backhand return, Rabakina was doing them in Brisbane. And obviously Sabalenka, her team are going to have to do some film study being around them or seeing them in the break point episode. It feels like they are someone who would put in that sort of focus to say, hey, it's even as low as you got to pick different spots. You got to jam her body. You got to find the forehand, whatever it may be. I just, and again, I know I'm leaning this argument towards Sabalenka, so I apologize that we're starting there, even though you have her higher than Rabakina on the list. I obviously still have Sabalenka number two. Is it as simple as the Brisbane victory? Like, is that the only thing that's given you that Rabakina benefit of the doubt? Is it Brisbane plus the Sviantec head-to-head? What has Sabalenka at three on your list? Yeah, it's definitely the recency bias in terms of that Brisbane final. It is the fact that uh, that Rabakina has a better head-to-head against Iga. And it's the fact that, yeah, and it's the fact that Sabalenka, who has typically had a better head-to-head against Rabakina, did not make a dent. You know, that seems like a pretty, like, uh-oh moments for for Arena, who had, to that point, been playing pretty good tennis. And I have to say, 
you know, in contrast to some of the um, conversation that's been happening around Team Rabakino over the last year or so, I think what we've seen on the Breakpoint episode, what we even saw um, when they did press at the U.S. Open, Sabalenka has a very like cohesive, well-adjusted team, whether it's, you know, Anton Dubrov is the coach, Jason Stacey is the fitness coach, physio, like just a really some good guys working with her. And I think that that they will have some constructive conversations with Sabalenka following this match. And maybe that will lead to an adjustment. But I just think if we're talking about Iga versus the field, I think Rabakina is in better form and is in better position to beat Iga. I mean, this could all end up being moot if, if and when the draw comes out and Iga and Arena are in the same, rather Iga and Elena are in the same half of the draw. That becomes a, a much different proposition for Iga. But if if it, if, if it is Rabakina in, the, in that half, I do think that in Iga's half, I think that'll be an interesting one. It'll be certainly the semifinal everyone's circling. Mm-hmm. No, Rabakina, uh, three and five in the career head-to-head with Sabalenka. Sabalenka, for what it's worth, uh, also, uh, I think it's two and four is the record against Coco Goff. That's just a little funky footnote right there. Goff, Rabakina have only played once. Goff 1-0 in that career head-to-head, so that's the records across the board. I mean, look, Rabakina got broken once in Brisbane. Got broken once in all of her service games. Now, she got broken once last night in against Buxa, but fought off seven of eight break points. Why she's playing this week, I guess when in the Iron's Hot, uh, Iron's Hot you just keep on striking, like, to her, her, to her, her own. But I mean, that's a potential danger zone. I'm more worried, perhaps, about her deciding to play this extra week and potentially picking up an injury or something. Like, that's really the one potential drawback I see in the Rabakina argument is that Girl, why are you playing this week? <laughs> Again, five and three in the career head-to-head. She trails Sabalenka. But the records across the board are really similar to Sabalenka over the last 52 weeks. Since the start of last year, Sabalenka uh, – excuse me, Rabakina, 53 and 15. Sabalenka, since the start of last year, 59 and 15. Sabalenka, 39 and 10 on hard courts during that stretch. Rabakina, 37 and 11. Like – there is not a lot separating these two. Maybe like 0.2 hold percentage. Sabalenka a little bit ahead of Elena Rabakina. But again, Rabakina has beaten her in an Indian Wells final. Now beaten her in a Brisbane final. Like obviously Sabalenka got the big one in Australia. But the margins between these two are extraordinarily thin. I just have to give Sabalenka that benefit of the doubt because Sabalenka didn't have a Kirstea at the U.S. Open loss like Rabakina did last year. She didn't have... I know Rabakina didn't play Wimbledon, nor the French. Uh, uh, no, she did play Wimbledon. It's because I'm only looking at hard court results. Excuse me. I, I mean, Rabakina had like pretty meh second half of 2020. She lost to Saribas, sure. Tormo, and Kirstea in third rounds at the majors. That never happened to Sab- uh, Sabalenka last year. She just seems to have hit a different gear to not lose those sorts of matches anymore and has given – I'm just willing to give her that benefit of the doubt. Was the Saribas cons- loss a walkover though, just to be clear? That was when she got sick in Paris. Correct. Good, good correction. Shout out to you as always. I just don't – like, again, the margins are really thin. Sabalenka, for what it's worth, top 20 in break percentage. Rabakina still can run a little bit hot and cold as a returner. Didn't really need to return that well in Brisbane because she was beating everyone so soundly on serve. But, again, dominated Sabalenka's service games throughout the course of that match. And if she's making a jump there – Good luck because she's not getting broken serve very frequently. Top three and hold percentage over the last 52 weeks, trailing just Sabalenka and Iga of all people. <sighs> I mean, I just saw Rabakina beat Sabalenka, so I understand your argument. I'm still sticking by Sabalenka two, Rabakina three. Final word on these two. Are we? I didn't hear your Sabalenka thoughts. Where are you with her entering this event? I felt really good, actually given the week that she had heading into the final. If it had been any other scoreline, I think I would have been a lot more bullish. That's positive. Bullish on Sabalenka. But then when she lost the way that she did, I felt like, all right, there's that. And then she's coming into her first Grand Slam as a defending champion. Let's all say a prayer, (laughs) you know, given how um, it did not work out for Sophia Kennan a few years ago when she was the defending champion. It was really on her mind and, you know, Arena, for as much as she has made improvements mentally, this is still a very new look for her. And this was a very emotional win for her last year. How will she stand up to that pressure? And then also just the later stages of the slam. You know, we, I, I still probably give Rabakina a bit more of an edge, even though, and maybe just because I've seen Rabakina in fewer of those matches, the ones that, that Rabakina has been in, she's been more impressive. You know, there's Sabalink has really stacked up a lot of rough Grand Slam finishes that 
again holds me back from making her the, de- the the definitive number two. Would love to be wrong. I think everyone would everyone would guess that I would be very happy if you're right in this argument. But I think between the two, I think Rabakina has a bit of an edge, and it would be overdue because she's certainly been playing Grand Slam winning worthy tennis in the last eighteen months, and it hasn't yielded one yet for her. And so that would be an interesting uh, development to start the season. It's a fair argument to make. My thing is Sabalenka has played so many of these matches, and she was someone who used to lose all of those third-round matches, couldn't get to the second week of slams until she could, couldn't get to the finals of a slam until she does and wins the damn thing. Now, again, she's kind of been stuck in that hump of getting over there one more time to get that second slam title, but I, I she's someone who has progressively gotten better in every season when, again, the, the highs have been so high, not just last year, obviously, where the highs were its highest, but each of the last four or five years, you've seen this sort of ceiling from Sabalenka, and I just wonder if she's going to be able to sustain it even better. Again, Rabakina was excellent in that Brisbane final. Sabalenka two, Rabakina three on, in my tier one. Are we selling Coco Golf short here? I mean, here's the thing. We are putting her in tier one. Like, she is not in the Pagula tier or the other player I have within tier two, which we'll get to in a moment. I do think Coco Golf has to belong in this echelon of the conversation because, yeah, one and nine against Iga is not great. Four two against Sabalenka is pretty darn good. One and oh against Rabakana, you'll take certainly. And again, she's 29 and four in hard court matches since the start of last year's summer hard court swing. And, you know, again, it's who she's beating during that stretch of time as well. It's not just cupcake wins. It's beating Sabalenka in the U.S. Open final, beating Ostapenko after that Sviantec match, beating players like Iga again in Cincinnati, Jessica, uh, Marketa Vandrosova, excuse me, in Montreal. Sakari was playing really well in D.C. when she beat her also, like, Kogoff's had real runs, real success over this course of time. And again, it's not just 29 and four over six months. It's 45 and nine on hard court since the start of last year. My fun fact for you, my keen observation I wanted to share as it relates to Coco Goff. I watched her run to the Auckland title, drop just one set. Shouldn't have dropped that set to Alina Svitolina. She served for the opener up 5-3, but she did drop it, bounced back really well. I want to get on her bicep program. Like She looks jacked to start this year and I mean again she's 19 like it makes sense like put in more time in the gym that's gonna pay dividends particularly at that age I feel like she was hitting the ball with more pace more action when she had the time to do so in Auckland and just dominating opponent to you know Navarro Fruvertova in particular even Svitolina in that first set could match her level for 30 minutes maybe even 45 in the case of Svitolina couldn't match her level for two hours. Like, could not sustain not only in matchup with her physicality, but again, the weight of her shot as well. Like, I do think Coco, still just 19 years old, can continue to jump a level this year with the, with the renewed confidence of being that U.S. Open champion as well. You almost, you almost wonder if the mental side of things pays off even more, just allows her to play that much more freely. Like, I think she's primed to take another jump forward here at the start of this year. I think she has to be in this tier one conversation because she offers like 92% of what Iga offers. Like you just trust Iga a little bit more because you've seen her sustain that level now for two years instead of just six months. But Coco's on that trajectory. 0.92 of Iga is a tier one player. Yeah, Coco suffers just from a lack of a relative lack of data points. As you said, we've seen Iga do what she's been doing for two years. We've seen Rabakin and Sabalenka 18 months, 16, you know, 12 months to 18 months. For Coco, it's still only been six. And I suspect, based on the way that she started the season, that she is certainly on the rise. And maybe we won't be debating so toughly between, you know, in a couple of months if she's number four or number two. You know, I think yeah. she certainly did put on a lot of muscle mass over the off season. And it's something that she hinted even last summer where she was just saying, look, when I was, I was younger, I was not as strong. And now I'm starting to get into a position where I'm getting bigger and stronger as with that comes with age comes with more, you know, the ability to take on more in the gym. And that certainly paid off um, already in Auckland. I think that was in a way it was smart scheduling. I mean, I, I said that I would have liked to have seen her play an ego or an arena, but I think it was good confidence building to, Put her back in Auckland, number one seed, you know, effectively ran away with the title, you know, final against Fiddling, notwithstanding, but just like a pretty good morale boosting way to start this year. Because I think she is someone who's going to be very much on defense for a couple of weeks because 
there was such magique about her summer that you couldn't help but wonder how sustainable that was because it wasn't like she was playing radically different tennis. You know, I think at first we felt like she was, and then it kind of felt like, okay, she's actually just playing her most confident tennis. So if she can maintain that high level of confidence, it kind of almost doesn't matter, it would seem, because she was able to play so well just on vibes. And, you know, maybe there's been some technical improvements, some physical improvements that will kind of just help shore up some of the holes that are still in her game. But it is one to watch Coco is, you know, for the next couple of weeks because she's now won a title. She's heading into another hard court slam where she's done well in the past, has a win over Naomi Osaka at this tournament to beat her as the defending champion. So she's certainly, you know, between Rabakina and Goff, I think Rabakina is probably still a tougher challenge for Iga, who definitely knows the Coco game. But um, yeah, I think we're really going to see, you know, this is, it's been quite a shift because last year it felt like, you know, Coco was really st stagnating. Now it just feels like the sky's the limit, which is feels like a, a very whiplashy kind of analysis to make, but it is a testament to the changes that she's made. Oh, absolutely. And the sort of athlete that she is, again, 29 and four since losing to Kennan round one of Wimbledon. The most impressive thing, who are the four losses to? Two to Iga, two to Pagula. You live with that. You live with that and you move on. Like, you have to be really good. Her floor now is just about as high as any player match-in, match-out we have in the women's game. And she's 19 freaking years old. And, again, you just feel like her work in the gym, I see it paying dividends. I see more pace on the forehand. I see more pace on the serve. She adds that dimension or continues to improve that dimension of her game on top of the athlete that she is in and out of corners. I mean, again, this is a Tier 1 player for the next decade or as long as she wants to continue to exist within women's tennis 19 years old I agree I think she's the final player of tier one and that moves us to tier number two DK and I know you always love when things get complicated with my tiers tier two for me is do I think you're winning the title I do not would it shock me to see you in the final no it would not and there are two players I have in this tier the first player in this tier is one we obviously excluded from tier number one, but given her consistency over the course of the past two seasons, Jessica Pagula has probably not been said enough as a name in this conversation thus far. And obviously it's been a choppy start to Pagula's season to lose the match to Bolter that she did, to not look comfortable in the Tom Janic victory in United Cup. Three sets against Bernarda Pair, although I would say Bernie P played really well in that match, but it just felt like Pagula's been in her on her back foot to start this season. And yet, you know, again, you look since the start of last year, Jessica Pagula on hard courts, pretty darn good. DK, 43-12 and 12 overall. You want to filter it out against elite competition. She's 13-8 and eight against the top 20, 8-4 and four against the top 10, has beaten Iga, Sabalenka, Rabakina, and Goff on hard courts since the start of last summer. Like, it's the same resume as all of those players we talked about in the top four. And yet... I just think those four players are going to be better than last year's version of themselves, that they still have another gear to hit with perhaps more consistency in a way that I just don't know if Jessica Pagula has another gear of improvement to find. Even if she sustains her level from last season, still a top eight player, still one of the best players in the world. She's still going to have a lot of success across the calendar. I just don't know if she has the weapons. Obviously, doesn't have that slam pedigree, but like that's not my concern. It's not about her lack of success in slam semifinals or lack of appearances in slam finals. It's just purely a tennis-related thing. I think those other four, the ceilings are just higher for them, match in, match out, than Pagula at this point, despite Pagula's floor remaining as high as any. I mean, Pagula didn't make my top 10. <laughs> so, I mean, I just think that's, we talk about the top four starting the season with, really good vibes. It just feels like Pagula there's a bit of a hangover. Top 10. Nope. What did I see? I Linda Noskova over Jessica Pagula. Yeah, that's not the Spoiler one alert. That was most. really, that's I mean, the... that was really for you. I was yeah. like, I'm, I'm going to put it Linda Noskova in the Happy she semifinals in Brisbane. I can't not, yeah. cannot include. Um, but I just feel like the top four starting the season with good vibes. I feel like there is a bit of a hangover for Jessica Pagula. I mean, even down to like the breakpoint episode that she's in with Maria Sakari. And it's just sort of it's them having like a mid off for 45 minutes about like, <laughs> I can't win a big title. No, I can't win a big title. And then they finally both do. But it's like, eh, you know, obviously, I think Jessica's was more impressive than Sakari's beating Iga to win the title in Canada. But I think so much of their both of their narrative arc is just their inability to close the deal, you know, whether it's 
Sakari in most semifinals or if it's Pagula, you know, in a Grand Slam quarterfinal. And so I think to the extent that she's in a tier where it wouldn't surprise you if she won, I think it would be very surprising if she won a Grand Slam at this point because she has a long history of not closing the deal at slams. I think it would be genuinely shocking. As good as she is and as good as she can be, I don't think that it would be a no-brainer if she wins it because it would require her to show up in these Grand Slam quarterfinals and play really good tennis. And she hasn't done that in any of her quarterfinals and, you know, has not had lack of opportunity. It was not like she, you know, when she got Azarenka last year in the quarterfinals, that was a seemingly a winnable match for Pagula. But Azarenka with her sort of X factor pedigree, former number one, former Grand Slam champion that carried her through. It's why I have Azarenka actually at, number, at my number five behind the top four in a, in a definite gap between tier one and tier two. But she's the top tier she is at the top of tier two for me based on how she started the season and based on her pedigree. Get to Vika on my list, I promise, not in tier number two. Look, again, like, here's the thing. For, you're not wrong to make some of those points about Pagula. I get in. By the way, tier number two isn't I wouldn't be shocked if you would win the title. It's I would be surprised if you won the uh, title. I wouldn't be shocked if you made a run to the final. Like, if just Pagula uh, popped in a final, would I be shocked? No, I wouldn't. I would definitely be surprised if she ultimately went on to win the title. But, like, you're right. The loss to Vika, it speaks to Vika's one match upside still a little bit higher than Pagula's just from the power tennis that she can generate. The loss at the French Open to Mertens, that's probably the one she wants back more than anything. The Vandrosova one six four in the third. But again, Madison Keys at the US Open, another one of those examples. Keys was just lights out on that day, and that power tennis ceiling was just a little bit higher than Pagula's. I wonder if the jury's going to be out on her in the way it was early in the season for Sviantec last season. If people are just going to try to hit bigger, swing freely against Pagula. You saw that for Katie Bolter. She's like, I got to play offense because I'm not out grinding Jessica Pagula. Even Bernardo Pera was playing with such pace in that match to get Pagula pushed on the back foot. And yet she's still too consistent. Like if she pops into a round, round of 16 always, that's just where she's going to be. You know, again, if she gets into a quarterfinal, obviously, then you start to think about the ghosts of Slam's past. But I just don't think it's the a mental block for Jessica Pagula. I just think it speaks to her single match ceiling and so many different players maybe having ones a little bit higher than her, even if their floors aren't anywhere near matching Pagula's match in, match out. Still, I respect the floor enough that she's tier two. That's I rest my argument. I defer to you, counsel. Final words on Pagula. I was just going to say, that's kind of worse because, okay. I mean, what can she improve? That's the weapon. You know, that's kind of that. damning no, but, to be like. But, but first of all, is it if it's if you're saying you can't improve and this is someone who's been top five in the world for two straight years, like sometimes your ceiling's five. It's not one. And I don't think that's uh, being rude to Jessica Pagula. I think it speaks to the talent of the top four. I suppose. I mean, I feel like and it's it's very tricky situation with Pagula because on one hand, she probably never thought she'd ever be in this position. So it's kind of tough for us and tough for her to even look at where she is now and be like, wow, I'm underperforming. Wow. I'm really underachieving, you know, given the fact that like my body was broken in 18 places and I never, I was like never top hundred until, you know, however, however old I was. I mean, this is just above and beyond the career that Pagula ever thought that she had would have when she was, you know, rehabbing her various injuries and playing challenger tournaments. So in, in, Never would I want it to be thought that her career is not a success, but I think when we're assessing and analyzing, we want to look at most players and say, well, what can you improve? Sabalenka, you know, the serving performance against Rocket. And what can, what can you improve Coco Goff? You know, the forehand, <laughs> you know, the, yeah, how you show up mentally against an Iga Shiantek. What can Iga do? You know, it's a, it, there's really not a lot that Pagula can do, except I, I would think, I do think there is some mental things that can be done. I mean, when you're getting out gutted by a Madison Keys as well as Maddie played, not great, not great. You know, just it's, you know, we saw Von Drusova have more X factor. We saw Azarenka, even at her advanced age, have more X factor than a Pagula. And I think she's ultimately entering these tournaments with a hope of winning. So it's to be able to not have any kind of solution is that's, it's meaner than anything I've said. <laughs> Fair enough. We can leave the Pagula's thoughts there. My second tier two player, the other one where it's like, again, if she won the title, would I be shocked? For sure. If she made a run to the final, would it like would it absolutely surprise me? It would not. It's Yelena Ostapenko, who I think has to be on this list. She has two top ten victories at the slams 
in the last year. Beats Goff at last year's Australian Open. Obviously, the win over Iga at the U.S. Open last year. Second most tour-level victories for her in a season. Her 37, the most since that breakout 2017 campaign. She had the best hold percentage, 68.7 last year, and that seems to have carried over into the first two weeks. She seems to be moving. She's come into the season fit, it feels like, DK. I really love the level, even though she lost that match against Azarenka. Two good wins this week against Garcia, Kirstea. Just given the style of play that she displays match in, match out, like I'm not worried about her putting too many matches on her body before the start of the Australian Open. My full thing for Ostapenko is, I think she could play two outstanding matches. I don't know if she could play four in a row, let alone seven. And so that's why she'll never be in that tier one grade for me until I see her do that again. But, like, she is playing the best tennis of her career. I understand how good she was in 2017, but I honestly think this version of her is better, and the field has just perhaps taken some leaps, and she caught the world by storm. Anyways, here's the point. Yelena Ostapenko is the wild card, always entering a, uh, a slam event, never more so here than this 2024 Australian Open. I do think she is playing that well right now that she could go up and beat one of those tier one players on the right day. I mean, isn't Ostapenko kind of like, if she makes the final, don't you feel like she would win the title? Like if for her, to That's what the way she would need to play, the consistency with which she would need to play through six matches, I find it hard to believe that she would have a letdown in the seventh. The problem, of course, for Ostapenko is that she has not managed to hold that up for, yeah. for, or for five matches, six matches, whatever. You know, playing very well and getting a good win often at these big tournaments, but not being able to, you know, take it home. And it's why I have Azarenka ahead of Ostapenko is because Azarenka beat Ostapenko um, last week in Brisbane. Although Ostapenko now uh, on course to make her return to the top 10. And I saw some stat that was like the last time Ostapenko was ranked in the top 10, like Naomi Osaka had never made a Grand Slam quarterfinal. That's crazy. 2018. That's how long it's been. It's like, Madonna Mia, that's like crazy. But I mean, it's a testament to the slow and steady improvements that Ostapenko has made, sort of sacrificing the, that sort of flash in the pan, you know, one great result that she used to have, you know, but for a longer resume of consistency. It's been impressive. And I do think, you know, on a hard court, I think she's someone who you really have to watch because she can land in, you know, she's still in potentially someone's round of 16 draw if you're a top player. You know, even if she's made those improvements in the rankings, she's still going to be an early second week out for a very unlucky top eight or top, you know, however, top eight, yeah, top eight seed because she's out of the, she won't be seated in the top eight. Um, which is brutal. <laughs> if you're any of them, you know, you work hard. You don't want to have to necessarily see an Aliona Ostapenko in the fourth round. And again, if she's in the fourth round, it's because she's been playing pretty well for the first three matches. So she's not necessarily going to have a letdown, you would think, especially in her first, you know, attempt against the big name. But yeah, I've been very impressed with her. And I think this top 10, you know, is well, long overdue. Felt like she was close to it last year, certainly close to it last week, finally gets it this week. So yeah, I'm very pleased to see her very much a part of the mix. Yeah, playing that well right now. And again, not many people could say I've beaten Niga at a slam. Yelena Ostapenko can say that. Bagel or at a slam. <laughs> was a ridiculous level of tennis. We're all going to wake up one morning early on the East Coast, and she's either going to be still playing, closing off an upset on that early ESPN match, or you're going to see her highlight having knocked off a top seed. You're right to kick off week number two. Now, again, the hardest part for her sometimes is getting to that week number two, but she gets there. You just don't want her on the other side of the net because of the power of tennis, the way she disrupts you, the way it always devolves into playing on her terms. I think she has to be included in tier two. Vika is the next name on my list. She's the first of tier number three, DK, where it's again, I'm intrigued. Do I think you're winning it? No. Do I think you're beating someone who's seated higher than you? I absolutely do. That's where tier three's description is for me. And that's why I have two players in it who I think are going to outperform their seed. Victoria Azarenka, the first. You're right. She looked really good in her opening week action in Brisbane, ultimately getting knocked out in the semis by Sabalenka two and four. But she played excellent in that match. Sabalenka was just, oh my God. Another, the on-the-run Sabalenka forehand passing shot she hits in that Azarenka match, sort of epitomizing Sabalenka being on one and maybe peaking a hair too soon in that semifinal. But look, the numbers have loved Vika, even though she's been a little bit sporadic in and out of 
uh, events over the course of the past year. She's one of just seven players, DK, over the last 52 weeks, top 20 in both hold and break percentage. Again, the eye test in the Ostapenko match, the Sabalenka match, her level is there, and then there's the pedigree. We've seen her get hot and make a, uh, a final of the slam. Now, it hasn't happened since the 2020 U.S. Open, so that's why I think she could be no higher than tier number three is it's been some time. I know she made, what, semi? she made semifinals last year? Yeah, yeah, semifinals of this event Beat last Pula. year. That's exactly right. But so again, it's been since then that we've seen her do that. But we know when she can get hot, the level she can play. That's why, again, tier three is probably where I go um, with Azarenka, just given the inconsistency since that Australian run last year. She's just such a confidence player. I mean, yeah. this week I was reading a tennis book. You may have heard of it. May may or may not be about Naomi Osaka. And it mentions oh. a point that I would agree with that, you know, Azarenka is someone who, with a little bit of confidence, can really catch fire. I mean, never forget 2020, that goofy, you know, since, quote unquote, Cincinnati tournament on the grounds of Queens, she wins it, you know, was not playing well or even much at all, you know, before that tournament, and then runs that form all the way into the final, was up a set in 2-0 on Naomi in that slam. So I feel like we're starting to see a little bit of that happen for her again. You know, yes, she lost to Sabalenka, but she lost to Sabalenka, you know, so I think that's, for her, not a tremendously confidence denting defeat and she got some matches under her belt she's you know coming into her most successful slam by a long by uh by a country mile so i think that she's certainly one to watch is still very fit is still very motivated and you know still making up for lost time i mean she lost a good amount of her mid to late 20s you know with her custody battle her maternity leave there was like a lot of stuff happening and so i think she is a younger you know whatever she is uh she's younger 34 she's younger than than her years for sure based on her amount of time spent on courts. So I think I'm glad you mentioned her as well, because I think she's definitely someone to watch. Yeah, when her level is high, it's extraordinarily high still. Again, go watch that Sabalenka footage. Azarenka's level beats all but maybe six players on tour right now in that match just easily uh, with how well she was striking the ball, how well she was moving. But Sabalenka was just on a different level. The other player I have in this tier, I know you left out of your top 10, and that's reprehensible to me because I know you're on the Chinwen bandwagon, DK. And As a fellow singer, how could I possibly? Precisely. As someone who has posed for many a magazine shoots. And since the end of Wimbledon, she's 22-7. and seven. Here are the seven losses. Iga twice, Sabalenka, Rabakina, Samsonova, who was on one of those runs in Canada, Madison Keys in Washington, and Haddad Maya 6-6 six and six in the Zhuhai final. She's beaten Ostapenko, Vondrusova, Sakari, Jabur, and others during this stretch of time. Top, you know, uh, top 15. I think she's 13th right now in hold percentage over the last 52 weeks. But she's just been on the steady ascent right now at a career-high 13 in the live rankings. I think she played Iga closer than anyone during Iga's United Cup matches, even though it was a 2-3 and three loss. I just think this is the next step for Chin Wen on her ascent towards a top 10 season, which I think if she stays healthy, everything breaks right. She will finish this year top 10. That's how high her level is. That's the totality of athleticism, power she brings to the court, match in, match out. And in an ascension to the top 10, a big Australian Open would be a big starting point for the 21-year-old. And I just like, if I was playing out the cards and playing the narrative, that's a narrative I could see coming out of the first week is there's a lot of Chin Wen talk after she knocked out. I'm going to be kind here and say like she knocks out Maria Sakari in round number three or four. That's probably not kind, but like a win like that or like, you know, again, I'm trying to think who's a top 10 seed that I can, she knocks out. Win over Sakari really be like a headline grabbing win. She beats Jabur. How about that? She beats Anj Jabur. No? Why are you giving me that look? Higher. Perhaps well, higher. The thing I don't is, know. No, but I, I mean, don't base- think she's going to beat a tier four early because I'm hoping they're not going to play a tier four player to like the quarterfinals. And then we can see her really get tested. But again, other than those tier four players, she could beat anyone else on any given day. Her her best as good as Pagula's maybe on the right day. And she can just do so many different things on court. Like again, part of this is a bet that 2024 is going to be a top 10 season for Chin Wen. On that quest, I think she makes a big run here to the second week. I think I would have felt better about her chances if she was still with Fizette. I just feel like okay. he was really someone who could fix a lot of the problems that Jung has with her game. And and again, someone who lacks data points for as many you know receipts, timelines, screenshots that you just listed for me, I still feel like there's still not a ton on her still. I mean, I remember this time last year, I felt like that was going to be a big breakout 
for her in Australia. And it didn't happen there. Obviously gets the quarterfinal, you know, at the US Open against Tejabur, who's sick, and then doesn't really show up against Sabalenka. You know, I think, I don't know. I, I She was certainly like, in my 10, 11 range on my list, she's certainly one of the most, you know, intriguing players. But I still think so much of what we think to be true about Jung Chinwen is sort of still vibes based and just sort of the look of her. Like, you know, like, how do you know she's a witch? Because she looks like one, like she just looks like a top tier tennis player, just like phenomenal, you know, built phenomenally, technically for the most part, pretty sound. But I think with some deeper, you know, some, a closer look shows, you know, there's still serve issues, forehand issues. You know, I think that's going to continue to hold her back. And I, I want to see more consistency from her, particularly off of those wings. The word volatile certainly comes to mind. Like there's some vacillation in the highs and lows you get from Chinwen, even within the frame of a win for her. But those highs are so extraordinarily high. And I just think she, she played more complete tennis down the home stretch. She relied on her physicality, relied on out grinding opponents, not just having to go for the big weapon and the big, you know, plus one ball right away, let her serve, build the point as the foundation setter. Again, it's a big bet on her to have a big year. She rounds out tier number three for me. Those are my top eight. Now I have a 13 name tier number four. We're not going to go through all of them specifically. I do want to mention all the of name. them. I want to. I want a yes or no vote on them. No, I want to hear everybody on this. Well, list. I'm perfect that you. I'm really happy you said that because here's what I want: is just what round you expect this player to go to, and I'll go in order. I have them in tier four. That work for you? Okay, that's and fun. I mean, I without a, without the benefit of a draw. And I yeah, exactly. Pre-draw, and I incorporated by the way your name that I disagreed with in your top ten. I put Pavlochenko over at thirteen. We'll get there, but this is purely tier number four is DK draw vibes. That's what we're gonna call this because I just want you to know where you think they're gonna end up getting eliminated in the draw. Yeah, that's the perfect sound effect. All right, that's, that's, the, that's the number theme song. one, Maria Sakari. Just round vibes. That's all I want <sighs> out of you. Third round. I'm going to say round four vibes. No. Yeah, I'm going to say round four vibes. Layla Fernandez. Oof. Yeah, that's the best. I spoke to Heidi Elzebach of the offseason. I I feel like I wanted to put her higher, but she hasn't really – she was not that impressive at United Cups. I'll say second round. I say round four vibes. I thought she was impressive at United Cup. She should have beaten soccer. You're going to pick more people to make the fourth round than there are spots in the fourth round. I can feel it. (laughs) Don't worry. Alina Svitolina. Quarterfinal. She's playing really good ball yeah. right now. Like, I couldn't agree with you more. She's Turn fabulous. Things. Yeah, she's, <laughs> she's balling. She's playing top 15, top 10, maybe even tennis right now. She definitely has better than ever. Week, second week vibes does not feel like a stretch. Vadrosova? Ooh. Have we seen her yet this year? We saw her play in Brisbane. She got, or at United Cup, excuse me. She lost to Chinwen, beat Danilovich. Both three Ooh. sets. Yikes. Uh, hmm. But she usually plays pretty well in Australia. I'll say fourth round. She's the one and I'm she, worried about. Could be an early exit depending on what the opponent is. But so I'm going to say third She's healthy. Round for her. <laughs> yeah. But I as mean, far she, as we know. Yeah. Relatively I was speaking. Obviously, really high on Vondrosova entering last season. I think if she finishes top 10, that's a victory this year to consolidate the spot. It means she was healthy. Sure. I, I don't hate your vibes. Noskova. Ooh. Third round. Yeah. Third round vibes. If she makes a fourth round, that's going to be the young name we're all talking about because she has that sort of talent. Speaking of which, Mira Andreeva, whom Noskova beat in Brisbane. That was a that was, that was definitely a niche a niche one for, yeah. for the real heads. Andrea. Had them stacked mm-hmm. next to each other because, again, they're both like, uh, like Chin Wen. They're narrative picks where it's like, they're going to be really good at some point. Why not now? I think for her oh, third or fourth, Three and a half. <laughs> I would say two or three. Just okay. run into the wrong seed, second or third round. Krechikova. Ooh, she lost early last week. Now in Brisbane or this she week? Did first week, first round this week. But she's one of three players top fifteen, both holding break percentage over the last fifty. She's weeks. so up and down. I, I mean, know, but she has to be in this tier four where you're like, I don't know, but it's a name you should say. I feel like she's my pick to lose early. Okay, first round. All right, that's the DK vibes. Osaka. Ooh. You like this list. This has been a good exercise. She's she's high. I, she is in my top 10. I put her she above is. Noskova because I was like, well, I can't put her behind Linda Noskova. That would be awful. Um, hmm. I think third round. It's, it's like she's one of those where it's like either third round or semifinal, third round or final. Like I feel like if she's playing that well, she'll 
she could win the whole tournament. She was hitting the ball very well against Pliskova, but then also did not close the door against Pliskova. So we'll say third round. We're eight names in. Be honest. You like my list so far. This is, these are decent names. Thank these you. are not like these are not embarrassing names. I, it's, I think you like to play with me more on the ATP. You'll be like Sebastian. By I mean, I'll be, I know who Sebastian By is. So I can't even I can't even think of a name I don't know. Yeah. Um, you don't want to do Yana Kaufman talk. Yeah, this um, yeah, is Yannick Hoffman. Where's he doing? Yeah, what's, so, what's he been up to? Sonia Kennan, nine. Oh, I feel like I haven't thought about her in a while, too. Um, second round. Jabur. Um, I mean, listen, she made the round of 16 of the U.S. Open sick. So we'll say fourth round. All right. I like it. Kostyuk. Third round. She's like Pot- the queen of the third round. I think this is a make or break year for her in terms of I'm still going to consider her having like top 10 ceiling moving forward. Potapova. Yeah. She's injured. She pulled out of Adelaide. So she played first really round. well, though. The thing is that Kudermatova match was so physical in Brisbane. Like, I think so this typical. might be, I think this might be, though, preventative more than anything. Like, I, Kudermatova's I really been like the, the nemesis for Potapova. She was the one that really stopped her from making top 20 last year. Now she's the one that's potentially made her too injured for the Australian Open <laughs> and to, or to compete at the Australian Open. Really, Kudermatova, and for all the crap that I've spoken about Kudermatova, I feel like it does feel like my karma. But um, I mean, it certainly helped. It helped, it helped Iga. You know, one loss to Kudermatova, boom, never lose again. So yeah, I, I think based on the way Potapova sometimes plays at these slams, I might say first round. All right, fair enough. Last but certainly not least, you put her on the list, so you got to make the case. Pavlichenkova. She's just, I, she's just someone who she's fit, healthy, motivated, charismatic. I could see her in the quarterfinal. This is her favorite slam. She's made the quarterfinal here three, four times, like a lot, quite often, even though she made the final at the French. This is a slam she's historically done very well at. I think not by coincidence, because it's usually the start of the season. She's at her healthiest and her fittest and her most motivated. But, um, you know, I like that she is playing well in Adelaide this week. I think she looks really good. And, you know, we didn't get to see a ton of her at the end of last year after the French, but I think she's someone with a, a good amount of pedigree, experience, veteran vibes. I could see her and Svitolina occupying a very similar niche. It's a shame we can't kind of talk about them in the same conversation anymore, but I, I do think it'll be a bit, it'll be a good one for, for Pavs. All right. I love to hear it. Well, again, first podcast of the year, David Kane, officially in the books, under an hour as well. That's right. Reform. That's it? <laughs> we are reformed. That's all I got for you. That's the top oh, man. 10. I know. Again, I'm working you in slowly here. I know. I got to get you into into Australian open shape as we're going to obviously have the opportunity to chat uh, about plenty over the course of the next two weeks. But you know, again, it's the Australian Open. We don't have that much data to go off of. A lot of it is vibe-centric. Um, obviously, that's my vibes. Those are DK's vibes heading into the Australian Open. But don't worry. We'll be back later this week to take a deeper dive on some of maybe the Tier 4 dark horses we talked about earlier uh, or down the home stretch there. And obviously, we'll talk Americans, look at the draws actually when they come out later as well. That said, DK, what can we expect from you as we prepare for the year's first major to begin? Oh, man. Uh, a couple things. An overdue interview with Elena Vesnina. Spoke to her um, at the end of December. She is coming back in Doha and Dubai. So that has been a slow um a slow article to come together because she's not playing yet. So, but I, I do plan to have it out in the next 24 to 48 hours. Cause I promised her that it would come out this week. Um, what else do I have? I mean, I've been recapping the breakpoint episodes. I did five things or I did four things. You'll miss. Cause you didn't really miss a ton from, from breakpoint. And then I recapped slash looked ahead the first two episodes. The next two will be out tomorrow, five and six on Friday, but we haven't spoke about it yet. What do you think of breakpoint? If you've seen it. Well, I could answer that, or I could ask you, go check out the Breakpoint recap show. Myself, Gil Gross, breaking down every episode. That I'm not invited to. This is offensive. I get the early screeners. Well, do you know, <laughs> I, I got the early screeners as well for the first time. To when did you get yours? Because your I got mine very late this year. Too late as well. Uh, oh, but we've already rough. recorded our first three episodes. We still have three more episodes to go. Oh, have want- me on for this Verif episode. <laughs> All right, since we're on podcasts, I, sa- I want you to know that off mic, and I'm not to put this pressure on him. I said we should have DK on for the zero episode. Um, and again, it's. Well, I think Gil was like, "No, 
Now he didn't say the, anything. The sexual tension is too much between That's us. Right. I he can't said, have it on the focus. podcast. Yeah, he's like, hey, when, you know, again, I, then I got to look good. I got to I gotta put on the deodorant, even though he can't well, smell he's got to pluck the, the eyebrows. Yeah, and they gotta exactly. Look, they got to look good Shine the forehead, me. all the things. And so, anyways, we will have you on the show, though. Don't worry. At some point in the meantime, everyone can go read your thoughts on tennis.com. And certainly, again, look for a bunch of Australian Open-centric thoughts as well. We look forward always to reading your coverage of any major, of course. In the meantime, be on the lookout for more podcasts here. Whether it's on this platform, the Great Shot Podcast platform, our Crack Rackets YouTube channel, or across our various Crack Rackets platforms, of course, a thank you and shout out as always to our super producer Daniel Westoff, who has what sort of a job to do, DK? Just a f- an editing job. Day in, day out, it makes everything possible here. We're immensely grateful for it. A shout out to Westoff. A shout out as well to our friends at Tennis Point, Tennis Point.com. The promo code is CR15. With that said, for the fantastic David Kane, our super producer Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host Alex Gruskin. DK, what do we tell our listeners? And that's the break. I almost said, hey, great shot. <laughs> yeah, I, know. I could see you. I could see it percolating. You paused for a hey, great shot. And you're like, wait, it's a break. It is indeed. And we will see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.